From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, so happy you could tune in today on this Friday, October 21st, for a new episode in which my guest is from the first time from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Terry Torres, and she is going to be talking to me about the role of the anesthesia technician in veterinary medicine. And you probably know that if you've ever had an animal go in for some sort of procedure, especially an invasive kind of procedure, that anesthesia is probably something that is required. We're going to learn all about how it is safely administered in this episode. So stay tuned. It's coming up after this news from NPR. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Daniel. Glad to have you along this Friday, and I'm happy to have here on the program for the first time from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Terry Torres. And, and we are going to be talking today about anesthesia in the companion animal and the role of the anesthesia technician. This is a kind of companion show to an episode that we had last week in which we were talking about the veterinary technician just in general. And that conversation leads well into this one. So, Terry, let me welcome you to the program. I'm really grateful to you for being here because this is a this is an important topic, uh, especially for a lot of listeners who have maybe uh, interacted with uh, veterinary technicians and have seen the important work that they do, and then to also kind of understand some of the stuff that goes on kind of behind the scenes, uh, away uh, from the kind of waiting area where um, people might be waiting for their pets. Well, behind the scenes, there's a whole crew of trained professionals who make sure that these animals are getting the anesthesia they need to undergo these procedures in a, in a really safe way. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, yes, we definitely provide uh, anesthesia care as technicians. Um, there are a lot of different uh, modalities that technicians uh, perform behind the scenes, but at the University of Florida, we have a specific anesthesia department um, that is completely in charge of taking care of the patients that need any kind of procedures. Um, as you can imagine, uh, the patients have to be still for so many procedures that you or I would go to the doctor for and be told to just hold still. But our patients won't understand that, and uh, sometimes the procedures aren't very pleasant. So in order to get it done in a safe manner, they have to be anesthetized. I'm glad that you mentioned that because this is a distinction that is worth making. And it's one that I think when it's explained as well as you did, it makes so much sense. And and, and that is that, you know, animals we're talking about, uh, our pets primarily here, they go into a facility where they're going to already kind of feel a little bit out of sorts because they're not in their homes or they're not with the people who they are usually surrounded by. And even though the personnel who are going to be caring for them in a veterinary setting mean them no harm and in fact quite the opposite, well, animals can't really understand that. It's just a scary place. 
And then you combine that with uh, something like an operation in, in which, you know, these animals really do uh, have to be quite still because this, the last thing you need is some animal moving around. And since, as you say, you cannot communicate to these animals in any way that they'll understand or obey the importance of being still, well, that means that anesthesia is going to be required. And this is where an anesthesiologist comes in and the technicians uh, come as well. But let's talk a little bit right at the beginning about what is anesthesia. So anesthesia is basically um, removing the ability to feel any noxious stimuli or to respond to it. Uh, so it entails relaxation, uh, it entails analgesia, and unconsciousness, which is very important. Um, and in humans, it also, one of the components is amnesia, but we can't ask our patients if they remember what happened because they can't tell us. But we assume that if we're doing our job right that they don't remember the procedure, um, and hopefully they aren't getting uh, too light to actually perceive any of the ongoings. Right. I mean, anybody who has ever thought for a moment about what it would feel like to suddenly wake up in the middle of an operation, it's not something that you want to happen. But this is where the training comes in. Uh, veterinary anesthesiologists have to undergo more training than those who don't wish to specialize in anesthesiology. What about veterinary technicians? Because last week in my conversation with Daniel Jonas, we discussed veterinary technicians and, and a lot of the work that goes in to receiving that training and, and having uh, kind of uh, the, the little characters after your name that indicate that there's some credentialing there or some special qualifications. What about becoming a technician that deals with anesthesia? Is that above and beyond what a regular sort of veterinary technician might be taught? So there are two things uh, involved with becoming a veterinary technician specialist, uh, and specifically in anesthesia. There are specialists in other uh, disciplines. For instance, there are veterinary technician specialists in oncology or um, also they can be in surgery. They can be in medicine, behavior, dermatology. There's all sorts of different types. And one of the most popular ones would be also emergency and critical care. Um, so in order to become a specialist in any of those uh, disciplines, you have to be a technician who's graduated from an accredited program. Uh, and there are quite a few of them across the country, but there are probably not more than two or three per state. Uh, when I was graduating, there were only one per state, and some states didn't have schools at all, but that's increased because the need for technicians has increased, and so schools have opened. Uh, but beyond that, you can go into uh, practice and work as a technician, and you can do many things, as uh, Danielle probably has discussed last week, everything from anesthesia to surgery to assisting with uh, laboratory tests, et cetera. 
if you want to specialize in something, then you end up spending all your time almost uh, in your career doing that particular type of discipline. So in my case, um, I've always worked at a university, and so that led the groundwork for me to actually pursue my specialty because I've always worked in an anesthesia department. And all of the things that I needed to do to acquire my credentials were right there in front of me. Um, we have to um, collect a case log, and we have to have worked for so many years as a veterinary technician. Um, we have to have so many hours to of just anesthesia. Um, you have to have so much continuing education that's directly related to anesthesia. Um, there is a skills list that you have to perform, and the person who signs off that you can do those skills must be a board-certified veterinarian in anesthesia or surgery or another veterinary technician specialist. Um, so, And when you have those skills signed off, they're signing off that you actually know how to do those things and that you can do it more than once by yourself. It's not just that they see you do it once and that's it. Um, it's a year-long procedure to apply to even take the exam to be uh, credentialed. And if you submit your application package and it's reviewed and accepted, then you have six months to take an exam that would then uh, grant you the credential to be a veterinary technician specialist in anesthesia. Um, and in other specialties, the process is similar. It's probably not exactly the same, but very similar in the steps that you need to become a specialist. So you say that once someone has undergone these extra, taken these extra steps to become credentialed in anesthesia and, and be able to care for animal patients in this way, that they are likely to spend much of their time actually doing these sorts of procedures. So in your day-to-day -day, uh, work, are you primarily just doing anesthesia? Correct. Um, because I work at the University of Florida and we're in the teaching hospital, we are actually uh, providing anesthesia to client-owned animals that come for procedures. And in conjunction with that, we're also teaching our veterinary students all about clinical anesthesia. Uh, we're teaching them how to place IV catheters. We teach them how to intubate the patients. We teach them how to use the drugs that they're learning about in a clinical setting. Um, we emphasize you know, analgesia and good patient care, of course, so that when they do graduate, they have the skills to perform anesthesia in a practice um, where they may be teaching their technicians uh, how to do some of these things. So um, every day I'm in charge of patients uh, along with students, and I'm working under uh, the anesthesiologist that's on the clinic floor. Um, we don't have a lot of anesthesiologists in the world, and because of that, the shortage means that the nurses are the ones who have to help carry out um, the actual clinical anesthesia under their supervision. So that's what I do every day. Depends on what type of patient I have, uh, what kind of procedure it's having. 
it could just have a CT. It doesn't have to be a, a interventional type procedure. It could be just a, a study to see if there's something uh, going on with the patient, like does it have a tumor or does it have ear problems? Is there a, a you know, chest problem? So it, everything is whatever comes our way, we, we anesthetize it uh, so that the procedures can be done in a safe manner and the patients can either get a diagnosis or they can be uh, relieved of whatever the problem is. I'm so glad that you brought up the shortage of anesthesiologists. And, and here's where I'll ask you uh, to maybe help me understand something. And I realize that you have been um, doing this professionally for a long time. And so uh, you also are in the world of kind of training the next generation of folks who will be specializing in this. But what about this shortage? Are you seeing are you seeing that even where you are, there are not as many people who are focused on this? What to what might you attribute the shortage of anesthesiologists? Well, first of all, I think you have to have the passion to uh, want to be an anesthesiologist. It's not always an easy job. You have to know how to anesthetize many species of animals. Um, the training is long. You become a veterinarian, and then after you become a veterinarian, you have to um, potentially do some internships before you can match to an anesthesia program where you will then have a residency of anywhere from two to four years. It just depends on what school you go to. Um, Currently, uh, at UF, we have a three-year program, and our anesthesia residents also obtain a master's. Um, so you have to be dedicated to do that. Um, the hours are long, and once you become an anesthesiologist, you also have long hours because, um, you know, you may need to be coming in on emergency calls, and some people just that quality of life is not what they want if they don't have that passion. Um, and the other thing is in university settings, it is a lot of work. We do have a lot of cases, and it's more lucrative for the anesthesiologists who have finished residencies to actually go into private practice. That's becoming more and more of a demand in uh, larger specialty hospitals that are not teaching hospitals. And um, I think they just feel like they get a better quality of life uh, by going to these different practices. So it may be a combination of all of those things. You alluded to having a passion for it. Can you describe what led you to having this specialty? When I was a wee baby anesthesia student, anesthesia tech student, I wasn't even an anesthesia tech student, I was just a tech student. Um, I went to school in the University of Illinois uh, where we rotated through those uh, clinics, the veterinary clinics there. I actually graduated from Parkland Community College, which is in the county of the University of Illinois. And so they collaborated with that school, and I was able to rotate through um, all the different clinical parts of the veterinary hospital. And I found that when I was rotating through the surgery and anesthesia department, 
I could see that the anesthesia techs who were currently working there were the ones who got to do the most hands-on with the patients. They, um, you know, had very much responsibility taking care of those patients. They ran blood work. They put in catheters. They administered drugs. They monitored the patients. Um, and I just thought that that was really what I wanted to do. I wanted to really be involved with the patient and taking care of them. And that was where I found my passion. And once you had made that decision then, uh, all that extra training kind of followed, was it easy for you to find work? Was there a demand um, for your skills? Uh, Yes. Actually, um, I fell into my job uh, initially. I didn't become a specialist and then get an anesthesia position. Um, That was an on-the-job training. When I graduated from veterinary technician school, I was just generally educated. I didn't have any specialty at all. Um, And so I came here to the University of Florida, and I started working as a general technician just taking care of patients in the wards and things like that. And I would be assigned to help in the ICU um, because they needed help in there. And then I learned some skills in there. And the skills that I learned there turned out to be something that um, the Virginia Tech really wanted uh, in a technician. And they had an opening in anesthesia. And because I had worked in the ICU area some, they hired me to be an anesthesia tech, and I learned to be one on the job at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. So it wasn't immediate that I was, uh, you know, a specialist, but over time and when the specialty actually evolved, because when I first got the job, there was no uh, specialist positions yet. There were no credentials. There were no boards that were doing that yet. They didn't really start our anesthesia uh, board until uh, 2002, I think, is the first class that actually uh, applied and then had an exam given to them. So it's fairly young. I know it's 20 years, but that's fairly young. Um, And, you know, we don't have a lot of members. So um, it just kind of came on the job in a way, and and I did realize I wanted to do anesthesia before that, but I just managed to get this job and enjoyed it very much, and I've been doing it ever since. So your path might be a bit different from how someone might arrive at it today, but I I wonder if you can, and and if this calls for speculation, then feel free to uh, not answer, but I I wonder if you know why it came about that this sort of uh, credentialing or, or this extra training in these different um, boards to certify people to do this, why did that come about? Was there a acknowledged need for this to be, um, you know, maybe tracked a little bit better to maybe have certain standards that were kind of universal in this country? I think that that is one of the reasons that this board was formed. Um, Many of the people who were the founding uh, techs in the AVTAA, which is the Academy of Veterinary Anesthesia Technicians, um, 
they all worked for universities and they worked with board certified anesthesiologists. And I think that they felt that they had learned a lot. They had a lot of skills. They needed to have the skills and knowledge in order to work with the anesthesiologists. And therefore, it just seemed the next step was to specialize and have credentials. Very similar to, um, I would say, a certified nurse anesthetist in the human world. Um, they work side by side with their anesthesiologists, and um, so it's sort of a parallel, I would say, to that. Well, we are just scratching the surface here of this conversation, and I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today is Terry Torres from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, where we're talking about anesthesia in the companion animal and the role of the anesthesia technician. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Hi, welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill, and my guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Terry Torres. And we're talking today about anesthesia in the companion animal and the role of the anesthesia technician. Uh, Terry, you mentioned earlier in this conversation that, and I'm, and I'm glad that you did, because I think that when I was discussing sort of in highlighting maybe at the beginning of the show what an anesthesia technician might do, I was thinking primarily of invasive procedures like operations. Uh, but then you you pointed out, and, and, and rightly so, that many times you're dealing with animals who might just need something as simple as diagnostic imaging, uh, but keeping them still is just as important as if they were getting a procedure like an operation. Um, absolutely. There are quite a few procedures that we do that don't involve um, actual surgery. Uh, diagnostic imaging, of course, is one. We do MRIs, uh, which is also uh, pretty common for patients that have um, intervertebral disc disease. Uh, if you have had a dachshund before, they tend to have uh, problems with herniated discs, and in order to diagnose which, which disc it is and where exactly they should go to do the surgery, the patient would have to have an MRI. Um, for us, we could just sit in the MRI, even though it may be a little claustrophobic, but our dog friends can't do that, and usually they're painful, so they need to be anesthetized and comfortable for that. Um, we do CTs for various procedures. Um, some radiographs we do under anesthesia because, for instance, if a patient has a broken limb, it may be more humane to actually do it under anesthesia prior to them having their surgery done than to just do it with sedation and then have the surgery the next day. It just really depends. Um, that's kind of hit or miss. Uh, we do a lot of dentals. Um, when you go and have your teeth cleaned, you don't have to be anesthetized. I wouldn't mind being anesthetized personally, but uh, my dentist won't do that. So um, our dog friends and cats, they, they are anesthetized to have their teeth cleaned. Um, and it's the safest way to do it because when uh, you have your teeth cleaned, if they use ultrasonic scaling, that uh, incorporates a lot of water spray 
and when the patient is anesthetized, it's very important to protect their airway, and so they have an endotracheal tube in their trachea with a cuff to make a seal so that that water and any debris, if uh, they have uh, calculus on their teeth, doesn't go down their trachea. So, um, you know, it's very important to make sure that all of that is in place so that they have a safe dental. Um, and then, of course, it could be more invasive than just having your teeth cleaned. The patient could have uh, teeth removed. Um, they could have a root canal. Some owners don't want the tooth to be removed. Even if it's infected, they'd prefer a root canal. Uh, and that's uh, very important with um, the working dogs. A lot of our police dogs, if they are um, the biting dogs, then they they want them to keep their canines, and so they have to have restorative procedures. Um, so we do a variety of things that are not specifically surgical operations. Um, we do anesthetize patients for interventional um, procedures, which means things that are like uh, cardiology-type procedures, where they're not really having surgery, but they are having the, uh, something in their heart um, corrected. Uh, and that's always an interesting thing to do. It's done under fluoroscopy, and it's just usually with a minor um, catheterization of a jugular vein um, or a femoral vein, but the patient has to be still, and some of those procedures can be life-threatening, um, especially if the patient is very sick. So you have to not only know how to take care of the patient under anesthesia with the drugs that you're administering, but also know how to intervene if there happens to be an emergency, which that's also very important, is to know uh, the signs that are an impending thing is happening. Um, so that's all part of what we do. Well, I mean, it sounds like in the latter, uh, and in fact, in, in many of much of what you're describing, it's the experience that's going to make the difference uh, for someone uh, to, you know, having an experienced veterinary technician, especially one when we're talking about anesthesia, uh, is is so important. Well, you had mentioned sedation, and I ought to have probably asked for just a little bit of a clarification to get you to describe maybe the difference between sedation and anesthesia. Sure. Um, well, sedation generally involves giving animals sedatives that um, make them drowsy. They're not as likely to um, respond to stimuli um, so that you can get some things done without actually having to anesthetize them. Um, you can't generally do anything that's super invasive, um, certainly nothing very painful. But you can do some minor procedures. You can do uh, radiographs. Uh, for instance, we do a lot of uh, thoracic radiographs, not in the anesthesia department, but our, our radiology people do. And those radiographs need to be pretty uh, clear and, and nice and readable by the radiologist. So those patients really can't move. and they tend to get very anxious because they have to be placed on their back for some of the procedures and you know they don't understand. And so if you sedate them, you can usually make them tractable and you can kind of, um, 
restrain them in a way so that they can have their radiographs done without being completely anesthetized. Um, and anesthesia is going to be that you make them completely unconscious. They, they have, um, you know, no awareness of what's happening. And generally, you have to have a, an endotracheal tube in them so that they can breathe and you can provide uh, the gas that you're using for anesthesia and so you can ventilate them so that if they happen to start breathing slowly uh, or not at all, you can intervene. Um, and so it, it's just a very different situation. Um, you can have very profound sedation, um, but then there's also sedation that is not. It's just enough to get the job done. Uh, thank you for that. What are some of the different tools and methods that you have available for administering anesthesia? Do they vary depending on what kind of species you're dealing with? Um, <clears throat> well, for the most part, all of the drugs that we use uh, in anesthesia, we use for most of our mammal species. Um, doses might be a little bit different from one to another, but uh, a lot of the drugs are similar and we use them, uh, whether it's a horse or a cow or a piggy. Um, we do a lot of goat anesthesia. And of course, our dogs and cats, it, it, it really is very much the same drugs all across the board. Um, when you get into reptiles and amphibians, that becomes a little different. And we don't honestly do very much of that anesthesia in our department because our zoo medicine department really handles that. And um, so I don't have very much experience with that at all. But um, for our mammals, it's pretty much the same. And so we use a variety of drugs that are like intravenous drugs or intramuscularly given. Um, and then, of course, we have our inhalant anesthetics, which once the patient is anesthetized and has an endotracheal tube in, they're attached to an anesthesia machine where we can deliver um, oxygen and the inhalant to keep them anesthetized. Um, and generally, we don't just use inhalant alone because that is a controlled poison, if you've heard that phrase before. Um, and so you don't want to use a lot of that drug just to keep them from moving. So you will also use uh, what we call um, multimodal drugs. So we address analgesia and we address uh, the unconsciousness um, and the relaxation with different types of intravenous drugs uh, to get the surgical procedure done. And that's mostly with surgical procedures. You know, we know that that's going to cause uh, physiologic stress with pain as soon as there's an incision. And so we want to combat that with preemptive analgesia and the um, anesthesia. Some patients are very sick and they can't tolerate the uh, inhalant as well as another patient would. And so that's when we tend to use a lot more intravenous drugs, uh, and we do things that we call constant rate infusions, where we have syringes of drugs and we give dosages per hour or per minute with a syringe pump. So we have this technology that we can use to deliver these drugs, and that way we can really decrease the inhalant 
um, or not use it at all, depending on how sick the patient is or what their uh, situation is. Now, Terry, I don't want to exaggerate any of this, but it is probably true that you know anesthesia does come with some risk, and maybe not every animal patient is the ideal candidate for anesthesia. When you have uh, these, you know, the, the, this sort of um, this sort of procedure that you're doing, in which you know you're you're conscious, of course, as the technician, that there is risk. How do you how do you work to to mitigate some of that risk? Well, first of all, we identify that we know this patient could have a problem. Um, it could be the patient himself is just delicate or fragile, um, and that or that the procedure is a really difficult procedure. Um, and so with our anesthesiologist, we come up with a plan for how we're going to handle this. And I tell our students, basically, we're anesthetizing the patient on paper before we ever actually start the procedure. Um, so we come up with a drug plan. We come up with um, plan A, B, and C, depending on what happens during the procedure. For instance, if it's something that we expect is going to bleed, then we know that the patient is typed and cross-matched so that there's blood available uh, that's compatible to that patient. Um, we also uh, discuss, you know, how are we going to handle if the blood pressure plummets? You know, what kind of drugs are we going to use for that? Um, if it's a cardio patient, uh, what are we going to do if um, all of a sudden they go into cardiac arrest? You know, we have to have a CPR plan. Um, who's going to be in charge of starting the CPR? And, you know, everyone has a, a role in that uh, particular scenario um, and so forth. So we just, if it's something that we really are concerned about, we make sure that we have everything in a row and know what our next steps will be if things get out of hand or trying to mitigate that. You know, we have our patients monitored. They have EKGs on them. We have blood pressure monitoring. Um, we monitor their uh, oxygenation. The really sick patients or ones that we anticipate a problem, we will do a direct arterial catheter so that we get direct blood pressure. It's not just a cuff on their arm, it's a uh, indwelling catheter in their artery. And we have equipment that can tell us minute to minute what their blood pressure is. Um, so we have a lot of ways to monitor them before a problem arises. But of course, you have to be able to uh, identify that things are actually starting to deteriorate. A lot of what you're describing sounds like a real team effort and everybody has a role. And can you describe how it is working with a team and, you know, the kind of cooperation that is required to handle, especially some of these complex cases? Well, generally, um, you know, the first set in the team is going to be the anesthesiologist and the technician. Um, because they're the ones who, you know, come up with the plan. And, and then the technician generally is the one who goes with the student and the patient, at least in my situation, 
um, and executes the plan. And then I'm the liaison between the patient, the surgeon, and the anesthesiologist in that if there's something going on that um, looks like it's getting to be critical or even just a little bit out of whack, if you will, um, then I'm going to say something to the surgeon and say, you know, I, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if it's something that you are able to fix, but, you know, there's something happening here. And then, of course, I'm going to talk to my anesthesiologist and say, you know, I'm concerned about this patient. And they will come and assess the situation, and then we all talk about, you know, what is it that's going on? And in some cases, the surgeon is actually the reason for the problem, and it's nothing that they can do about it. They have to proceed until they can finish the job, and that's where we do everything we can to support that patient until they get their job done. So that's how we are uh, the team with the surgeon, you know, that we let them know that we're having a problem. They let us know that there's nothing else they can do right now. They have to just keep moving, and, and so we do everything we can to make that happen. Um, so in terms of some of the cardiology procedures, uh, we know a lot of times that the procedures that they're going to do for the patient uh, could cause problems, um, and so we just talk to them, you know, throughout the procedure as to, you know, this isn't going very well or this is going great, you know, just keep going, everything's fine. So it's um, really just a lot of actual verbal communication. But it does sound like being cool under pressure is something that would be very helpful here because it sounds like a pretty high-stress environment or that it can be. It can be. Um, I know that I am a very, I don't know, I don't know if I'm cool or not, but I don't get excited easily. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't think there's something wrong. I just don't panic. But that comes with experience. It takes a long time, I think, to get to the point where you realize that it's not really a serious problem. Um, I would say that one of the things that I do most during the day is troubleshoot. Um, I troubleshoot the equipment uh, because our equipment is not foolproof. And if there's just a little bit of um, movement on the surgeon's patient, on the surgeon's part, it could uh, indicate on my uh, monitor that the patient is having a problem when really it's artifact. So um, I do a lot of mitigating, uh, you know, just artifact and so forth. So I've learned to discern what's real and what's not real. And what it is real, um, that's when I get excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and I totally agree with you. And I think that a, a lot of people across a lot of different kinds of professions and fields uh, completely even outside of veterinary medicine will acknowledge exactly what you say, which is that experience tends to help reduce the degree of anxiety one fears when performing any particular task. Uh, you can just uh, have some perspective and kind of keep cool. So let's take one more break, and then we'll come back with more of this conversation with Terry Torres, the 
anesthesia technician, and we are talking today about anesthesia in the companion animal. We'll be back with more Animal Airwaves Live right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill, and my guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Terry Torres, and we're talking about the role of the anesthesia technician. And I want to ask, um, Terry, because this is something that you kind of alluded to earlier in the program, but I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't come back to it because it's going to be so interesting to so many of our listeners, uh, not least uh, to, to me, uh, because I have seen at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, the kind of apparatus that exists for, say, giving a large animal like a horse some some sort of uh, MRI or something like that. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a big operation, and, and people might understand why, because one, this is a big, heavy animal, uh, and two, it's got to go in this machine uh, that certainly any... Um, conscious horse not in a million years going to want to stick its head into. Um, And it just kind of highlights how, you know, on any given day, a veterinary anesthesiology anesthesiology technician uh, might be working with a bunch of different kinds of animals. And you got to know a lot of things about, I don't know, proper doses and stuff. And and sure, this is written down in the literature somewhere. Um, But what kind of animals have you worked with? Um, well, for the most part, I've been working with dogs and cats because, in general, that's our biggest population of companion animals, but um, also uh, horses. We've anesthetized lots of horses um, for different procedures, and um, I've done some bovine. Um, when I worked at Virginia Tech, we had a much higher caseload for bovine um, anesthesia. So I do have experience with that. Um, Here at Florida, we don't do as many, but we do some. Um, And then also, we do a lot of goats here at the University of Florida, and that's just recently, probably in the last 10 years, become more of a caseload than it used to be. Um, And I was very curious about that because I was like, why are we anesthetizing so many goats uh, on a routine basis? And it turns out that I did a little research, and I actually gave a, a little talk about it at one point about uh, ruminant anesthesia. Goats are considered ruminants, as are uh, bovines, cattle, excuse me. Um, anyway, uh, it turns out that the reason that we are seeing so many goats is because the um, popularity of goat cheese in this country has gone way up, and the popularity of just people making things like soaps and lotions. So uh, that has increased in this, especially Florida, that tends to have become a big thing. Um, And then also there's a huge interest in meat goats, which I didn't realize that, but it's because there are a lot of people from the Mideast and the Caribbean who live in Florida and on the East Coast, and that, that during their high times and holidays and so forth, goat meat is preferred. Um, And I also read that goat meat has actually got a lot of good qualities. It's much leaner than beef and uh, so forth. So in any case, uh, that answered my question as to why we were anesthetizing more goats than we ever had. 
Um, and also people will have them as pets. Uh, lawn mowers, I think, is really what they are. Sure. So um, I have done some exotic animals in my career, uh, not so much anymore, but I have had the uh, experience of anesthetizing some tigers uh, when Ringling Brothers used to have their retired tigers down in Tampa. Sometimes they would come up for different procedures. Um, and one time I was also involved with anesthetizing an orangutan, which was extremely amazing. Those animals are just fascinating. Um, and so that was definitely a team effort. Whenever we do exotic animals, it's always a team effort with the zoo medicine department because they definitely have the expertise in handling and um, they also do have a certain amount of expertise with uh, you know, sedation or tranquilization of those animals. So once they're tranquilized um, and we are able to actually handle them under uh, sedation, then we can actually anesthetize them and get their procedures done. And most of the time, those exotic animals, um, they're being anesthetized a lot of times just to get diagnostics because obviously you can't just draw blood from them or do any of the things we would normally do to a dog or a cat without some uh, general anesthesia. Now we've got just a couple minutes left here in the program, and I wonder if I could get you to maybe give some advice to anybody who's out there listening, especially some younger people who are thinking about their future career plans and what they might be, and whether or not you might recommend a career, one, as a veterinary technician, but two, as someone who specializes in something like anesthesia. It does seem like it would be uh, a kind of path that would likely result in consistent employment. Um, absolutely. I think that if you're interested in being a veterinary technician, um, that would be, to me, a really great opportunity because you can learn so many things. You can learn um, how to interact with patients and provide care to them, and you can learn a lot of different modalities. You, you don't just learn one thing, and so even if anesthesia isn't your passion, then maybe there's something else that you would rather get into, so you don't have to just work in a private practice, although some people flourish at that. They're great with working in a private practice that's just general um, and there's not a lot of, you know, specialty going on. But uh, the opportunities are diverse if you go into veterinary technology. Um, and of course, the specialty aspect is definitely something that will make you employable. But even just getting a general veterinary technician degree makes you very employable. Um, I have to say that through my career, I've been through the recessions and through some of the really hard fiscal times in this country. And to be honest, when I look back at it, I, I don't even remember being worried about losing my job because I was so, um, specialized not just in anesthesia but as a technician that um, I was needed and at this point what I understand for every uh, 
technician graduate, there's at least four or five jobs available. Um, so that's really quite encouraging for someone who wants to get a job and be employed um, and then potentially explore specialty situations. Some schools actually have tracks where they can specialize in certain areas. It doesn't mean that they will automatically be able to sit for any specialty boards, but it gives them a leg up when they do get into a uh, employment situation. Yeah, I mean, it's it just sounds like there is a lot of opportunity for those who understand the kind of uh, you know the difficulties of the job, but who have the right attitude. And I'm so grateful to you, Terry, for for being with me today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. That's Terry Torres from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm Dana Hill. I want to also thank Sarah Carey for her help with the program. And I want to thank you all for listening. I hope that you will join me again next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. Mm-hmm.